Welcome to Business School. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. And my name is Phineas Ellis. I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a show where we explore the many aspects of consumer startup culture. Today's guest is Ryan Babenzine, the founder of Greats. Ryan, we met a couple years ago. We've traded war stories on our respective journeys. And then last year, you sold your company to Steve Madden. Really, really, really interesting journey. And also, this is a topic that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a lot of questions about, and people in general. What is that process like to sell your company? And that's what we want to dig into today. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. So I'm going to kick it off. We're going to rewind the clock a little bit. As I mentioned before we started recording, I was at Jack Irwin at the time, another shoe company, when you started this brand. And I remember us all huddling around a computer watching your launch video. And at that moment, we were kind of like, all right, this is this is a business to watch in our space. And so from that point on, I've been a close follower. And one of the things that stuck out to me, and obviously at that time, there were a lot of new companies launching and it was kind of difficult to differentiate in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I always admired and tried to get us to do at Jack Irwin and other places after that uh, was the way that you leaned on collaborations. And so early on, I remember the Beast Mode collaboration with Marshawn Lynch and then a number of others seemed like you would do one every few months and they would sell out almost immediately. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a way to hack two things. It's a way to hack early stage revenue and it's also a way to hack culture right? You were able to leverage that in order to garner at least some level of cultural relevance while being a small, small company at the time. Can you speak a little bit to how you leaned on collaborations early on and what that did for your business? Yeah. I mean, you know, collaborations, I think, are super important and still are. And and I think, you know, finding the cadence is what really matters, but doing them is a great strategy. And we had you know, out of necessity, well, first we came from the sneaker industry. So collaborations were really invented by the sneaker culture. I think if I'm not mistaken, the first co-branded collaboration was in 1999 between Nike and Supreme. I'm pretty sure that was the first one ever where two brands sort of did a co-branded product. And then that evolved into the sneaker business. As, as I came from the sneaker culture, I lived and breathed that space. Uh, and part of our strategy was, hey, we don't have a lot of money. We didn't spend any money on marketing for the first 18 months of grades, not $1, not a cent. But we did do a lot of collaborations. And that was the hack of how do we create media stories and culture hacks, uh, as you've identified, without paying for them. And collaborations were sort of a mutually beneficial partnership on a micro level that allowed both of those brands or creators or whatever the partnership was to get a crazy amount of press and uh, and if it worked well, sort of create a product that was better than the individual could do on its own, whether it brand and designer or brand and brand. Uh, and I think that's what makes a really good collaboration good is sort of the sum is greater than its parts. Um, so yeah, we we basically did for the first three years, we were dropping a style, color, or collaboration every 
two to three weeks because we felt that frequency was constant, getting them pressed. And because the endemic sneaker culture has such a wide range of media outlets, they love writing about the new thing. And we were able to get released press every time we dropped anything for four years. I mean, and to this day, if we put together a, a drop, it's going to get written about. It was a core component to your business, if not the business entirely, for those early years, right? It wasn't the business, but it was a core marketing strategy for sure. Yeah. So you started out with no marketing of the first 18 months, which I think is insane. Um, no marketing spend. Spend, no marketing yes. Spend. spend. Yeah. When, when the, I guess that changed after 18 months, how much did that change? And then how much did you start spending on marketing? Like how much did, did digital spend start to become a, a component of, of the brand growth? It, well, it didn't become a lot. I mean, at least not then. And, and uh, you know, there's sort of a, uh, you've probably heard me say this publicly a lot. Like I don't believe digital marketing creates demand. It creates awareness. It doesn't create demand. And those are two different things. And they often get misunderstood. You know, it's really easy to engineer marketing where you can just spend money. That's not very hard. It's very hard to create demand through, I want that, <laughs> right? So product first, product's got to be amazing. And the second part of that is usually like putting it in the stream of culture and not running a fucking Facebook ad. Because the people that appreciate what that is and create culture are not looking at Facebook ads or Instagram ads or any other digital platform. Well, maybe now TikTok. That's, I, would, I would say TikTok actually has some relevance, but for a bunch of different reasons. So we started spending money, but I wouldn't say that was what really mattered, right? Like we just had some money to spend. I think I, I recently wrote this equation out. Like you, if you can't create organic word of mouth in a brand, you're going to be on a wheel of marketing spend that will continually return less and less and less and less. And that's my belief. But I digress. <laughs> well, so you were, you were growing a lot. When did you start the company? Let's back up a little bit. When did you start it? And then the point of the show is going to be focused on, you know, when you, when you exited it, what changed from start to finish and let's start working our way that way. So we actually launched the business in the, in the, third quarter of 13, but, but we really say we launched this in 14 because here's, here's what happened. We have no marketing dollars. We make 2,400 pairs of shoes. We go live. We sold a pair of shoes every 90 seconds for the first 24 hours on, on average. And that inventory was gone in like 75 days. And then we were like, okay, shit. <laughs> we literally have nothing left to sell. Let's go out, raise some money, and really sort of launch from there. So June 14 is when we sort of came out with a strategy plan, you know, a little bit of capital, and off we went. And then the first 18 months, you're just relying on collaborations, word of mouth to grow the business. Then you get big enough that you're trying to generate more awareness, you're growing the business. And then we were just growing the business. You know what our biggest problem was, and this is the one, like looking back, not that I wasn't aware of it then, but looking back, I was like, wow, that was our biggest failure ever. Being out of inventory of core product 
too often. It just fucking, man, it was painful and we just never got it. We ultimately got it fixed, but it took way, 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 way too long. And what founders need to realize is there is strategic scarcity. And those are, let's say, collaborations. We're making 500 units of this thing and that's it. And it does what it's meant to do. And then there's what there's white. <laughs> so if white's your bestseller and you're out of it 30% of the time in the core sizes, you are losing customers every day. And like we knew that. We just couldn't correct the supply chain fast enough. Uh, and that was a that was a big failure. Can't you raise debt or other types of capital to to help solve that problem? It wasn't a capital, it really wasn't a capital issue. And yes, we could have raised debt, but we weren't really sophisticated at that moment of like understanding the different financial vehicles or different methods that we could solve this problem. We were so busy creating, right? Like that's really what made greats special. We were like creating special things and we just didn't have a team that was big enough that was worrying about you know, making sure we were out of, never out of white. Uh, and, but, but that's a mistake. I am not justifying the way we handled it, but that's looking back. I'm like, wow, that was more painful than we thought. So the, the spoiler of this episode is that you did sell the company relatively recently, which we'll get into. Before we talk about that, I wanted to ask a question of at what point leading up to the sale did you stop feeling like a startup? Was there a point where you said, okay, we're no longer in growth, grinded out mode, and I'm now looking at what the next level is? I mean, presumably, and I would imagine you may have felt like a startup up until, you might still feel like a startup, but was there a tipping point for you where you said, okay, we got most of our stuff figured out. Now we're just adding efficiency, hiring some more senior level people. Can you talk about that? Was there a moment where you transitioned to sort of a new phase out of I'm a scrappy startup just trying to sell. There was, I think there was moments of like, we felt like, or at least I personally, like we're out of startup mode, but then we're back in it. And it's sort of like, it wasn't linear in that there was just moments, right? And you have, you make a key hire and then something doesn't, somebody, somebody else leaves. So it's whack-a-mole. It's like, oh shit, I thought I solved the, marketing part of the team but then i have now my design thing is wrong and then i have to solve not not that we had a high turnover we had we, we had almost very low attrition almost zero in the first four years but it never got out it never hit its rhythm so because of that i always felt we were in a little bit of a startupy always more startupy or meaning startupy than sort of pure efficiency mode right like we just weren't firing on all cylinders as often as I would like. There'd be moments of that and then something would fall down and I'd be like, fuck, man. Like, but that's, I think that's it. Like, that's really the game. I, I don't think anybody sort of greases all the wheels at the same time and they all roll as perfectly as you think they're going to. Um, so personally, that's, I felt like we were always up in, in a little bit of a startup mode. One of the things that I think is an indication that you've gotten bigger and are sometimes out of startup mode is kind of who you partner with and collaborate with? Did the groups that you're collaborating with change as, as the company grew? Sure. I mean, we got, we got a lot of awareness, right? So like the brand was getting a lot of exposure and that opened a lot of, a, a lot of opportunities. But in the very beginning, and this is sort of a unique story, the gap flew us out to San Francisco like month five. We we're pretty much out of stock. They were like, they were like hey, we want to offer you it was specifically for Old Navy, 
a very unique, lucrative relationship. And we didn't take it because it just didn't seem right. Like the brand was not nearly established. And we just felt we would have gotten dwarfed under the old Navy. One, it didn't fit for what we were, our vision was. And two, we would have been dwarfed by this big organization. And, but yeah. Old Navy's quality is not on par. With, no, no, not at all. You know, if if Greats is where Greats is today, I think you could do that. I think you could pull that off. Kind of like how a high-end designer will do a collaboration sure. with IKEA. Yeah, exactly. Like cool, it works, but not when nobody knows who you are. Exactly. And we wanted to make sure we established the sort of price, the value, quality proposition that we were making sure that we delivered on. But yeah, I mean, we did, look, we did a... We made shoes, custom shoes for Kevin Durant and President Obama. So like, there's not many sneaker brands in the world that do that, especially at year three. When Obama left office, Hypebeast or Highest Nobiety or one of those wrote a piece on Obama's sneaker game. And they talked about two brands, Greats and Nike. You know, we're three, they're 43. So like, that's pretty good company to be in at a company that at that time had raised, you know, single, very small, single digit millions. And just was talking the talk, man. I mean, that's where we were at that stage. Did you do a collaboration with Steve Madden prior to selling to them? No, no. Steve Madden is a very different business. And I think, you know, but their strategy is, Hey, we, we do this really well. We need to get into the next brands that have a much bigger digital footprint than they do. And they're smart to, to sort of have that strategy going forward. So let's talk about that transition. You are X amount of years in, and then the idea of selling your business somehow comes about. Can you talk about why that came up, how that came up, and what that decision was like? Well, specifically with them, like I had met Steve and Ed, like the Steve, Steve and the CEO. And like years, year two or three, again, like footwear industry, small business, relatively small. And that when you're the first digitally native sneaker brand in the world, and you're starting to sort of get on the cover of Women's Wear Daily every couple of weeks, like people hear of you and then they want to just like, hey, what are you guys doing? Let's have lunch, that kind of thing. And that's how it started. But we kept the relationship over the years. When it was time to fundraise, I just... Look, I think there's a major misalignment with many capital sources and what it takes to build a brand. And it was, my logic was, well, building a brand specifically in footwear is very difficult. We should partner with a footwear brand that understands how difficult that is, that we can get immediate scale efficiencies without being scaled, freight, logistics, factory relationships, terms, price, like when you bundle that into a much bigger organization, we could have grown another, you know, double our growth year over year for 10 more years and never got that level of access. And I think they understand, you know, their 33-year-old business. I think they understand the long-term commitment to building a brand. So that's really like how that sort of evolved because we were going to be raising money and I just it was a shitty time to raise money. The market had really not, just wasn't that interested in digitally native brands and fashion at that moment. And that moment changes all the time because now like any, now like they only want to look at digital brands again. And, you know, sort of all of that together is, is why we did it. So this is 2019. 
it's tough. You were going to fundraise and yep. it's a tough fundraising environment. And so then how did you decide to go from, I'm going to fundraise to I'm going to sell the company. And was there, were there any other factors at play that made you consider this is a better path for us than just grinding it out? Look, my, my goal has always been, and if you go back to the earliest of days where I'm speaking about greats in public, long-term view, build a brand, long-term view. And we had some investors that didn't understand what that meant. That didn't mean three years. That didn't mean five years. That meant 15. And there was a ton of friction and I was just fucking tired of it. Like to be very frank, I was so like, this is not, you didn't, you got on the wrong boat. Like you don't understand what we're doing here and you're problematic to the business. You are actually problematic to the business and we need to get this group away. Not all the investors, but a couple of them. What types of investors were created create the most friction? Angel, venture, growth, private equity, family office? Well, I don't think you can categorize a specific type. I, I Look, investors are people, right? So it doesn't really matter if they come from private equity, venture, family office, or wealthy individual. It's about the person. And you know, raising capital, and this is, this is something we all learn. Some of us learn the hard way. Some of us just get lucky. This is the biggest relationship you're likely going to have in your life, maybe even bigger than your relationship or partnership, like personal. Because even, you know, we didn't raise a ton of money, but over time we had raised a total of like $15 million, $16 million. And that's just a lot of money like to be sort of like, hey, yeah, just go do whatever you want. So it creates... You have a very quick relationship and then you're sort of saddled and you don't really know a lot. And this is where I'd like people to, you know, form founders that are thinking about this. You just got to do more diligence on who you're getting in bed with. They diligence the shit out of you. Trust me. Like these investors are back channeling all over the place. They're digging up rocks, asking people you used to work for, who you dated. You know, it's, they go deep. Founders are sort of like, I got a term sheet. I got to get the money in. And we don't, or at least I didn't do enough diligence on who I was taking capital from in, in some of those instances. Yeah, but what you just said is so true oftentimes. Like it's not, what actually happens for most companies is not what you read about in the press about the, the hottest companies where they've got multiple term sheets. Of course, you're going to do deep diligence on, on everybody if you've got six offers on the table. The fact of the matter is fundraising is really hard and you may only convince one group to put up a check and then you're not, you're not making the decision of who's the best investor. You're making the decision. Right. It's the only one. It's the only one. Am I willing to take money from them or run out of money? In, in the bar, I think the reason why they have so much power, investors have a lot of power frequently is because most companies are put in that situation. And when you're picking between maybe run out of money and the company goes under or we have to be stuck and plateau if we don't raise money or take money from somebody that, you know, whatever, like I'll figure it out. I'll take the money and I'll figure it out. And in the rare situation where you do have multiple options, I completely agree. You should diligence or more, but this is just part of the, part of the game. And it, it sucks. No. And you're, you're right. Like there is, that is the reality. I can say for us, I put a premium on speed to close. So we didn't do a lot of fundraising at that moment. It was pretty, it was pretty quick. 
we did a, we were doing like a tour. We we're like, all right, cool. We're going to do 10 days out West and we're going to do a 10 day Northeast. By the time we got back to the Northeast, we had a term sheet and that probably was a mistake because ultimately that didn't work out the way we wanted it to on both sides. And if I had done the, taken the extra 10 days, gone up, met with other people, I'm confident we actually could have gotten another investor because this was, you know, not, this wasn't 19. This was like before that, right? But you're right. When you only have one option, you take the risk. So what kind of stuff were these investors doing that created friction? Look, there's, <laughs> there's too many things to get specific. Like I, like I said earlier, building a brand is really, really hard and it takes time. And if you're looking to model out perfection, it never works that way, right? So early stage people understand that, later stage people don't. And sometimes you don't get, you just, you got to get the people that understand what brand building really means, which is why I think in general, there's a misalignment from investors in brands. There's great ones out there. There really are, are but there are so few in the market. And what I keep saying is, well, who's going to fund the next great brand? Because it's not always going to be 300% growth year over year for everybody. So we actually achieved that year one, two, and three. So we were, and that was like with stockouts and those mistakes, but it just takes somebody that's going to be helpful. And again, I think this is an individual thing. This is not a category thing. Good people are who you want around. We had a no asshole policy at greats from like, we just wouldn't hire somebody if we just felt they didn't fit into the culture and the team. I can't say we did that for some of our investors. Like we just allowed total assholes to be in our world. And it was a pain. It was just not productive for anybody. And I think founders need to try to create optionality. I mean, that's really what this is about. You've got to be able to create optionality. Let's talk about optionality at the exit. So you decide the based on the fundraising environment and having some toxic investors around the table that you want to get out of the company's life so you can just focus on build, continue to build the company. You decide to sell the company. How, how did you approach that process? Are you hiring bankers to shop the company around? Do you have strategics that you're already talking to? We did have a banker. We were talking to strategics, but I think this ultimately comes down to relationships, whether bankers have relationships with said strategics or founder has relationships with a strategic. And in our case, that was the, that was the case. I, I had built this relationship with Steve Madden company, Steve himself and Ed. And I just said, look, I, I'm, this is where we're at. <laughs> we think would be a good time to, to come under the umbrella. And then they, they thought that was a good idea and it, it all worked out. From start to finish, how long did that process take? It was exceptionally fast. Uh, it was like 48 days. So you called up Ed and said, hey, we're thinking about selling the company. Are you interested? And he said, yep, and let's, let's look into it. And then 48 days later, you guys signed the deal? Yep. And, and again, I think part of the reason was the sort of timing of where they were in that they wanted to, they are looking at other brands. They we were sort of building a, you know, they, they have 15 or 16 brands under the Steve Madden umbrella. So this is not new to them. And it, it allowed them to move really, really quickly. And we had a relationship. 
and like again like anything else in life relationship will grease the wheels and you know who you're dealing with and but i i think that was atypical i don't think that's a normal path to to close in a, either in a fundraising round or an acquisition was that a satisfactory exit for the investors that were on your cap table that you were hoping to move away from? Were they happy to sell the company? Was that satisfying them? I mean, was it, were they impatient money and you were looking for longer term, more patient investors? And then also ultimately any level of exit is, makes them happy. They were thrilled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were you thrilled? Uh, I would have waited a little longer if I really had my own way. Uh, but I was, I'm, 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 I'm happy with it. It's just, yeah, I would have waited another year or two at the very least. Well, I think it's really an interesting uh, lesson for for folks who own companies and are thinking about what an exit means. I think we have a pretty narrow perspective on what success or exits really mean. We think big exit for a large dollar amount that everybody writes about or going public, which nobody really seems to totally end. We talked about this on last week's episode with Phil Krim of Casper, what an IPO really really means for a company. So can you speak a little bit to what it's been like since? So you were acquired and now you're living under the umbrella of a different company. Did your operations really change? Was there a transition process? And does what is it like to live underneath a larger business as a still growing sort of startup? For us, it was great, right? They, they are, they were and are great partners. And that's what I hoped for. They really understand the footwear business. So they, they, um, and they've bought other companies before they have, so they're, they know how to do this and they've probably messed up on other people to learn. Yeah. Or, or been successful or messed up, but they've, they've probably learned, but for us a lot, like the, you know, we kept a separate office, you know, everything was still great. The only difference was, uh, or there was many differences, but some of them were, factories and terms and you know i didn't have to pay for samples <laughs> like the, all of the efficiencies that come from having a multi-billion dollar footwear umbrella on top of you there's a lot of good you can do with that so it was it's been great you know for me it was like i stepped down i've only stepped down as ceo seven weeks ago and that was more of a just this has been on my mind for two years, closer to two years of, am I going to do something else? There's other opportunities that I keep getting presented. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm super curious. This thing is parked and safe. And my vision of long-term brand can now be executed with or without me. And I think that's a really important part of a brand builder. The brand should exist way beyond me, right? That was always the goal. And I've said that from day one. I didn't name it after myself for that very reason, right? We didn't, we wanted it to have its own identity and the brand is the thing. And COVID hit and I was just like, fuck, I'm going to do something else. And we sort of just mulled around and, and here we are. Yeah. It should be noted that this is a lesson in the many meanings of what success is, right? There isn't a linear path and there's no one way of doing it. I mean, your goal was to create a brand that lived beyond you and was able to sustain with or without you. And you've done that and you found partners that understood the vision, believed in what you were doing and are willing to take the brand forward. And I'm sure you're going to remain involved in the company at, at multiple levels, even though you're not CEO anymore. I think it's a, a real lesson in 
this is a success story. It's maybe different than what you originally thought when you started the company, potentially, I don't know, but it's success because your ultimate goal was to create a sustained, a sustained brand that lives beyond you. And I think that's, you know, something to really consider and to think about and to celebrate. Well, thank you. And I think that's right. I yeah. think people need to understand there are, you know, the highlight that you read, the highlight reel of the billion dollar exit, like those are literally the highlight. Then there's something beyond, below that. And mo most of them you never hear about, right? They, most of them are failures. There's no sort of trajectory to success. And then there's like the middle, which, you know, I put us in. It's sort of limited capital, generated meaningful revenue, positioned a brand for success for the future. We're in year seven. What does this brand look like in year 12? Women's hasn't really evolved enough. We haven't added apparel to it, like all of these things. And I think we created the platform for greats to go do that, even though I am not operationally running the company. How much did you say you raised again? Over four years, we raised $16 million. So 16 is not, not a lot in the grand scheme of, of startups. And no. I think that is a really powerful lesson as well in capital efficiency. I mean, you didn't look at... A lot of I mean, most investors would agree the Bonobo sale was not a successful investor outcome. They had just raised, even though they sold for over 300 million bucks, they had raised too much money to make that be a successful exit. And if you are more capital efficient, like you just said, the outcome where you sell for hundreds of millions or over a billion dollars is so incredibly rare. You kind of have to juggle that and balance it because you're, as every investor wants to hear you say, you're aiming for the moon, you're building the next billion dollar brand. And the point is like, greats could get there, but it might take way longer than anyone's willing to wait from an investment perspective. You're just right now laying the groundwork to get there. That's right. And if your exit along the way happens much closer to the beginning than the end, then yeah, the exit is not going to be some like, eye-popping number and that's still six that's still a successful exit but it's only successful because you were capital efficient that's right if you had raised a hundred million dollars your exit would be looked at as a failure as a total failure yeah and and again looking back i would have i would have raised the same amount of money i would have raised it faster because ultimately i should have just raised a bigger chunk in that first real raise and then maybe one more time instead of like little bits like one and a half, one and a half, one and a half, eight, you know, that sort of thing. Again, that's a- Didn't that train you to be capital efficient? It did, but it, but I know that now. Like I know what capital efficiency looks like. I also know what, now that I know that, I know how to do that and I can do it with more money sooner, right? Like that's sort of my, my logic. I would have not known that then. I needed this look back to really go, yeah, probably should have did that a little, the sequence should have been different. The amount wasn't wrong. It was the timing of the amount. But that's a nuance, right? That you, and again, I'm spe speaking specifically for grades. Like we, sh we would have done it differently looking back. But if you think about, okay, digital native brands have only been around for 12 years, right? That the first one is Warby, right? 12 years. This idea that you, in a seven year LP window on a fund, <laughs> you're going to create a billion dollar valuated business is unhealthy. Because it's magic to happen. It's not strategic. If it happens, it's fucking luck. It's not modeling. It's not planning. It's just 
wow, we got fucking lucky. And every founder you know and I know in the bar at the back room when we're talking real, they know it. So it shouldn't be, investors shouldn't think about it. Like, let's get that. Let's, how do we strategically build a great $300 million business? Because we only have seven years to do it. And that's putting a ton of pressure on, on a brand. I, I still don't think that's even fair, but that's where this misalignment is coming where, you know, you can't really plan on that, man. That's it's not, there's like, and the valuation is usually inflated and it creates other problems down the line as we're learning with pick a brand, you know, anybody that's gotten that valuation, many of them have not lived up to it. Most of them have not lived up to it. Yeah. You're hitting on a lot of the, the core points of our show that we've done in previous episodes. So what's next for you? I know I have looked at your profile and see that you're involved as an advisor in a couple, a couple different businesses. What are you working on now? What are you thinking about for the future? Well, I am spending a, a bit more time on my advisor roles. I'm really enjoying, you know, Attentive Mobile is killing it. It's another startup brand that's in a very, very early stage uh, called Try Now, which I've been on, you know, 10 plus months. So almost since the beginning, and there should be some big news coming out about that in the very near future. And I'm sort of committed to myself to not do anything until like January, at least from a career job <laughs> standpoint. Uh, and I'm just thinking about, you know, What's, do I start something new, which is an option? Do I join a fund of some flavor? Do I take a role at an early, early stage company that I can, you know, really get in on a, a co-founder, not necessarily co-founder, but just guide like, everything that I've just learned and sort of make sure that we, we uh, apply that to whatever that company is. So that's it. That's what I'm doing. Uh, and I'm, you know, chopping wood upstate. <laughs> Labor is the greatest, you know, sort of focus to, to get your mind off of the frivolous shit sometimes that we, we often think about too much. Couldn't agree more. Do you feel like you have more options because you are a founder who has exited their company and has that stamp of approval? Like I raised money, I grew a brand that you've heard of. It's got an amazing reputation. And then I sold it to a huge company and that was a successful exit. Do you think that that opens up more doors for you than, you know, say the person who works on something for several years and doesn't quite take off? Well, sadly, yes. But I say sadly, because I think your greatest lessons come from failures. At least they do for me. And like, I've thought about starting a podcast and like fail, I don't want to call it fail to win because nobody I know that has been successful on anything has been like, yep, started playing football and I just breezed on through. I was number one from day one all the way to my end of my career. No, they fucking worked their ass off, didn't make the team, didn't get to the team they won, dropped passes. Like life is just a series of failures, and the successful people are the ones that just keep on banging away at it. So I'm not, you know, glorifying to success is what we do as a culture. So yes, I, my value is not because I exited a business. My value is because I learned a, a ton by the mistakes I made and yet was still able to exit a business like that, that that's unique. But I think that's, you know, we, we gotta have grit. We've gotta just keep working 
at how do we learn and grow and keep knowing that we're going to keep failing, but can you get up again? Can you get up again? Can you get keep going? That really is the simplified version of how to be successful. Like I, I truly don't know anybody that's ever done it any differently. Well, I know you're cooking up some really <laughs> cool shit for, for potentially for your next move. So uh, I have no doubt you're going to apply a lot of those lessons in your next endeavors and are going to be even more successful with those. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Class dismissed. Boom. It's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man. Well, we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it. All right, guys. See All right.